0: A podcast 1
1: production Hi, I'm Christopher Pine and welcome to Pine Time. For years I've been on the receiving end of a barrage of questions some would say abuse from the media and other politicians. But I've tried to keep it together and hopefully I've had a successful career in politics. But now I'm out of the game and I'm risking it all to step out of my comfort zone and embrace a new world of media, to turn the tables on my guests so you can hear for the first time stories that you've never heard before, as they succumb to what some people are kindly describing as the Pine Effect. So listen now as I talk to the Deputy Leader of the Labor Party and the Shadow Minister for Defence, Richard Miles. Richard Miles was elected as the member for Corio in 2007. And as a result, he's not a member of the Parliamentary Contribution Superannuation Scheme. Unlike you. Unlike me. <laughs> yes. uh, which is a great blessing. <laughs> and course. that's why he's agreed to do this in the vain hope that uh, when he leaves, I might give him a share of the royalties. Well, as if that's ever going to happen. If there are any royalties. <laughs> it's never going to happen. Uh, and I may, because I do feel sorry for the people who aren't part of the
0: PCSS. Can, um, can, how are you going to give expression to that, sorry?
1: <laughs> well, by giving you a share of my <laughs> royalties. <laughs> but you're not. I'm not going to share them with the other guests <laughs> because they are all got real jobs. <laughs> and you, of course, are stuck as the member for Cario now for at least another 10 years <laughs> and uh, with no PCSS. <laughs> but Richard was the minister in the ill-fated Rudd government the Minister for Trade. Were you in the Cabinet because you are the Minister for Trade? Yes. Oh, God! It's a
0: trade, it's a Cabinet post. It wasn't very long, though, was it? No, it it was a good five or six minutes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) More usefully, though, he was the Parliamentary Secretary for Pacific Islands and Foreign Affairs for a lot longer in the Gillard government and uh, developed a real interest and expertise in the South Pacific, which we're going to talk about a bit later. But I got to know him more as the Shadow Minister for Defence when i was the minister for defence industry and then the minister for defence and he's now the deputy leader of the labour party which is a real feather in his cap so congratulations to you on being elected deputy leader of the labour party thank you christopher it's a grand old party so it's a real achievement isn't
0: it it is and um you know and i feel very honoured to to be in the role it is an achievement it, it of course comes at obviously not for you, but what is for us a very difficult time. So there's a bit of sweetness about it. Yes,
1: but we'll get to the catastrophic
0: result. <laughs> Can you stop smiling?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I am very pleased for you personally to be the Deputy Leader of the Labor Party. Mm-hmm. And obviously I want you to be the Deputy Leader of the Opposition for a long yeah, of time course. to come. <laughs> But the result was obviously a catastrophe, and nobody listening to this, by the way, especially Labor voters, of which probably fifty percent will be, uh, want to go back through the entrails
0: of that election. So,
1: more importantly,
0: how are you, you coping?
1: How are you coping?
0: <laughs> I'm I'm okay, uh, but it but it's uh, and you've been, you've had difficult election results in your time, so you you know the experience. It's painful. There's a lot of pain around. In fact, I, th- I think the word really is grief. Um, mm. it, it's. Obviously, there was high expectations of of how we might go. Um, I, th- I mean, personally, you know, I always felt that there was an election to be won or lost, and that either result could happen. And in fact, you and I talked about that, and so I don't think I was ever completely emotionally invested in the idea that we'd won before we did because mm. there was an election. You didn't
1: count your chickens before they
0: hatched. Yeah, and I really, I really didn't count them. So I don't, I don't feel like anything's been stolen from me, but it, it is certainly. It's a difficult and sad time, um, and it takes some getting over. But a lot of people on your side probably did
1: count their chickens before they hatched, and so yours and Anthony's primary Mm. job at the moment must be
0: just kind of lifting the spirits. Uh, That is a big part of it, um, and it's about letting people know that the sun's still going to come up and that there is a future out there and that there's hope as part of that future. And there is, you know, we we, are relative to what we thought was going to happen. It obviously was a, a very different result, but we're on 68 seats. We haven't been smashed in that sense. Um, the government's only on 77. There's a lot of learning for us in this. I mean, I, I have a, a very deep sense that this happened by our own hand. You know, we could have won it if we had have done things differently. And I don't say that with any um, individual blame. In fact, probably I say it with a sense of guilt uh, and, and a sense of collective responsibility. But Are you a Catholic? I'm not. It's often been said of me that I do guilt well, though. So, you don't in a very carry the Catholic, Catholic guilt
1: plus the guilt of
0: losing the election? because no, I'm I think Catholic. I, so I, I carry think I carry it, it all. I'm <laughs> <laughs> I've got quite a lot of guilt. <laughs> uh, uh, don't worry. I've got lots of guilt going on. It's not right?
1: much fun, actually, Catholic guilt, by the way. You always <laughs> feel like you're doing the wrong thing. Well, that essentially describes my life. It yeah. also plays into the Irish character, which is every time you see a police car, you assume. That they're going to stop you and charge you with something. Is that it.
0: is that is that genuinely your
1: assumption? Every time I see a police car, I think, Am I doing everything right? <laughs> I mean, have I done anything wrong? Are they going to pull me over? I do. It's terrible. It's so the you have Irish, Irish heritage? Yes. Right. We came out in 1842, the Irish Catholics and the English side of the family came out in 1838.
0: I, I obviously know that you are a very um, staunch cultural Catholic. Is that a fair sure. way to describe it? Yeah. Yeah, I got a Mass though. What's your confirmation name again? Anaphreus. <laughs> and tell us all why so did you choose? Why did you, why did you choose Anophryus?
1: Anophryus, which is a Greek name, <laughs> yeah. which is anglicised to Humphrey, is my confirmation name because my father gave me a book of saints. Yes, and said you should read these, this book and pick a saint. And most of my Mm. colleagues at St Ignatius Norwood in year six were picking, you know, Bartholomew and Ignatius and Matthew. Everyone goes for Ignatius, don't they? They do. They really do. David Feeney, he's Ignatius. Right. And, um, well, he's a good man. And um, I picked Onofreus because, and my father was a bit surprised, and I said, (laughs) well, because, you see, nobody (laughs) is going to pick Onofreus. (laughs) Nobody. And so... He'll be the i o- I'll be the only person he's praying for in heaven. It is It was sheer genius. And when Bishop O'Kelly, sorry, Bishop Kennedy, now O'Kelly, Bishop Kennedy said when I walked up with my little card and they handed him my card, he said there was no saint an offres. And I said, Well, actually, there is there is your lordship, because he's a your lordship because he was a bishop, not a your grace, because he's an archbishop. Of course. And,
0: <laughs> we needed that detail. And
1: well, you know, <laughs> detail's important because <laughs> um, they are. And uh, that was good, and so an res was chosen. Do you want to know so, the story of uh, we, we'll Without get there, me getting emotional?
0: I just, uh, no, well, I just want to. Uh, you're uh, not uh, supposed to be interviewing me, by the uh, way. So you are famously the fixer. So, so I just want to be clear: as a young child, you're already working out the odds, your best odds in terms of the afterlife. <laughs> Absolutely,
1: <laughs> and I'm sure. I you know. Funnily enough, I got a little note from a woman who lives in England, in a very small town, a postcard who'd somehow discovered on the intertube, <laughs> oh, I think it's the internet, actually. The interweb. And the face Tube. No, it's the face. It's not Face. Get on tube, with it. YouTube. <laughs> that I, my confirmation name was Onofreus, and she wrote me a letter saying that I was the first person in the whole world who she'd ever found out had the same confirmation name as her. And So become, there is another one. We've become pen pals. And I wrote back to her saying, did you choose Onofreus for the same reason I did, which and? was that nobody else would ever choose them. And she said, no, it had not occurred to her that, that was a good reason to choose them.
0: Uh, so, so, so now uh, I'm intrigued about why she chose Onophorus. Yeah, but before no, um, we get there, like, so how did Onophorus become a saint? He was a hermit. He <laughs> lived. <Yeah. laughs> this is true. He said he lived in a,
1: he lived in Egypt. Right. In a cell under a palm tree or a date tree. Right. And the abbot who, of the order that St. Onophorus was a member of, was doing his visits to people in his precinct or whatever they call it, and he got to St. Onofreus' cell and said to St. Onofreus, you know, you haven't been coming in for communion. And St. Onofreus said, I don't need to because, <laughs> I'm <getting> emotional <laughs> thinking about it, because the archangel <laughs> Gabriel brings me communion once a week. And the abbot said, well, obviously that's not possible. And he said, well, that's exactly what happens. And if you wait here, mm. you'll find out that's what happens. So the abbot waited for a couple of days and, Lo and behold, on the appointed time, the Archangel Gabriel came and delivered communion to St. Onofrius and the abbot, and then St. Onofrius died mm-hmm. at the same, basically at the same time. And the abbot thought, well, I'm going to stay here because this is a marvellous thing that, you know, I get the communion from uh, uh, the archangel. And then the date tree fell on the cell, smashing the cell, and there was now no longer any food supply or water supply, so the abbot had to go back and tell St. Onophorus' story. So that was God or the Archangel Gabriel saying, no, you're not staying here to get communion from the Archangel. You're going back to the Abbey to tell people about St. Onophorus' story.
0: Because this is Onophorus' special place. And
1: that's why he became a saint. I see. Well, there you go. Which I think is a lovely story. <laughs> Don't you think that's a lovely story?
0: <laughs> I don't know what I... Uh, the Anglican... You have a confirmation name. You No, get, no, we don't. Oh, you only have the two sacraments, don't you? It's just gone above my pay scale right, right there. I've got no idea what you're We've talking about. We've got quite a
1: lot of sacraments, you know. <laughs> you took us off on the tangent... And honestly, I think it's good for people to hear Satan offers <laughs> stories. <So> I'm glad. <laughs> do
0: when you, you realise we are now down to a listenership of about two, <laughs> oh, which rivals Pine and Miles. No, <laughs>
1: oh, and Miles, we'll get to Pine and Miles. That blockbuster, that ratings
0: blockbuster,
1: <laughs> it was. as it was known. Now, do you remember when I first, you ever came to my attention? Do you know when oh, that happened?
0: I, I, I think I do.
1: When you write that
0: <laughs> <Yes>. eye-wateringly
1: funny <laughs> column... Was that for 10 Daily? Oh, who
0: was that for? That no, column? that was for the... That ended up being in the Adelaide Advertiser. That was
1: for the Tiser. Yeah. When you
0: were... <laughs> it's an Adelaide story. <laughs> you were at the beach house... In Glenelg.
1: In Glenelg. Yeah. When you were a little bit more portly. Uh, quite a bit more portly and than I am. You, do you want to tell the story? Do you want me to tell the story? <laughs> so now you tell the story.
0: So for those who, who don't know it it, it, it has slides, and I'm there with my young family, and the slides are enclosed, so it's like a, a tube. That, that you go down, mm. water's going down. I'm a it father, so <laughs> the kids are going down. <laughs> I thought, I'm gonna join the kids Proving in this. It should have been an alarm to me that there were no other adults participating <laughs> in this ride. Anyway, it turns out that you, you over a certain weight, it just doesn't work. So I'm going down, but come to a stop. And clearly I am just too portly for this slide. I'm really not sure what I'm meant to do at this point. Uh, like I am essentially at this moment an affront to physics. Like I am stuck to the bottom of the slide. you have
1: to pull yourself along well, the side with your well, hands? Well, firstly, uh,
0: it does occur to me straight away, uh, there's going to be a problem here the next mm-hmm. time a kid gets in here, which is only going to be seconds away. I'm desperately trying to push myself along, not working. (laughs) I try and turn myself around to crawl down the tube, which just lacked any dignity at all. Then I'm hearing the rush of kids come. So I get back onto my, you know, sitting. Next thing I know, a kid comes careening into the back of me and then another one into the back of the kid. Like it was just... Backing up.
1: And there was nothing Uh, to press, no button to press. There is
0: nothing to press at all. Oh, Lord, because nobody'd ever thought a man of your size (laughs) would attempt. The pool slide. So eventually there were enough people that kind of were, like it kind of built a pressure. Oh, God, um, yes. And we inched down and like then... a champagne bottle. And then that's what happened. I popped, yeah, out, the popped out the bottom.
1: other side.
0: There's a whole lot of parents You're watching. The kids are spilling slamming. out on either side <laughs> of me. <laughs> <laughs> All the kids then are horrified and they're running no. off in... in and the, where were your children? Oh, my children. Were and they
1: had, hopefully at the top of the slide not knowing this was happening? No, sorry. So, were they well, back? Out the Pajero and driving <laughs> back, back into the, the city.
0: of this was, is there? You know, so so parents can be in the coffee shop and don't have to be. There, there is closed camera TV on the exit. <laughs> <laughs> the kids are watching this spectacle on the TV. <laughs> they are so <laughs> appalled that oh, when I went up to been. see them, they you know they turned they no, they, t- t- turned they, they had our, no idea oh, who no I was. No. I, we don't know that man. And were you still in your you were in your bathers still? <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, I'm in my shorts
1: wet in your board shorts back into the coffee place with it, the four it, children. So, so if, four you're, children if
0: you're imagining, not all four, there were three of them right. there, but but kind of beached whale, like oh that's essentially Lord. the spectacle. How terrible. Um, the kids behind me, all well, the kids get out, they then hair up the stairs to be the next one on. The thought that they were going to be stuck behind me again, they needn't have worried no, of course, well, they but they have... were bolting up the stairs. <laughs> Every parent I looked at just had, uh, you know.
1: Well there, but for the grace of God go either, all <laughs> I'm thinking. I'm not sure
0: that was look, I don't think any of them were going and there. And I think that I
1: really give you enormous credit that you thought the best way to deal with this humiliation...
0: It was humiliating. ...was
1: to write a column <laughs> yes. telling the whole world about it.
0: Yeah. Well, it did, it did change my life. Uh, it was think a I've, seminal moment. I, I've lost... Uh, I think I've lost 15 kilos wow. since that day.
1: And I was reading that in Parliament House... <laughs> I must have been reading it online, and I was literally doubled over <laughs> with tears running down my face, and my staff all came in and said, I said, this is the funniest thing I've ever read about a politician ever. I can't believe this man has written this column, and it's fantastic. <laughs> you did lose the weight. You took up golf. You'd already no, been a golfer. I've been a
0: golfer a long time. But you took up
1: running every day. Yes, I do. I run every you day. You still run every day? I do. I ran this morning. It's amazing. Yep. And, but the golfing is like a sort of cult thing for you, isn't it? I believe in golf. You believe in yes. golf <laughs> as opposed to the sacraments of the Anglican Church. Indeed, I And think your children have been dragooned into golf, haven't compulsory.
0: they? It's compulsory. So my, well, the, the golf story is my, my father was a very good golfer. He was the University of Queensland golf champion in 1948 or something. Fantastic. Um, he, and he was a very good golfer. Then in his mid-20s, children come along and he doesn't pick up a golf club for 20 years. Um, right. which is quite a common story of that sure. time. So I figured the only way I was... Basically
1: the same thing happened to me.
0: It, 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 true. Yeah, I would have been a professional golfer. <laughs> well, so I figured the only way I was going to be able to play golf is if I took the kids with me. Because when you come huh. home after a week in parliament, say, if the conversation is with Rachel, my wife, that great to see you, I'm now going no. off to the golf course for couldn't the day. I agree more. They're, that's just not happening. Crazy. But if the conversation is, I'm going off to the golf course and I'm taking all the kids with me, it's you go for it. And that works. Totally works. So Completely which course is everybody. that in Geelong? 13th Beach. 13th Beach, nice
1: yeah,
0: course. Which is, yeah, it is a nice course. So, so it's I where played, the Victorian Open
1: played. My dad decided that I was no good at sport. Yes. Uh, <laughs> my brothers and sisters were good at sport.
0: Right. But I wasn't. Did you have a sport? Debating. <laughs> yes. Yeah, okay. And of at course.
1: Ignatius, of course, as many boys. And wine tasting. And I, <laughs> no, not at school, Richard. <laughs> the boys at Ignatius were just as much fighting to get into the first 18 as they were to get into the debating no, first. They weren't. Oh, no, they weren't. Believe me, <laughs> That's they weren't. ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's if they were. That's my memory of it. <laughs> of course it is.
1: And I was a very good debater. So, you know, I... I had a lovely conversation with a man whose name was Dozer on Kangaroo Island one day, which was humiliating for my children at a barbecue in a shed, a sharing shed, and Dozer was a local contractor and Dozer said, um, I don't think Dozer was his christened name. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and do- he looked like a Dozer, all right? So Dozer said, what's what sport do you play, mate? I said, uh, debating. <laughs> And he said, no, "I kind of you know, when you say that to someone who's called and looks like Dozer, it couldn't go either way. Yeah. And he said in front of my children, who were, of course, immediately embarrassed, well, you made good use of that, didn't you? And I thought, oh, no, you're fantastic. You're fantastic. So my sport was, was debating. But then my dad said, well, you've got to have a sport, you know, because otherwise people will think there's something wrong with you. So you can do golf because anyone can play golf. And? So he taught me golf and I had golf lessons at Royal Adelaide with the golfing professional, mm-hmm. Alan, and then I played quite a bit of golf. But when, I used to play golf basically once a week or fortnight or month. Did you long, have a long, handicap? Long I did have a handicap actually. Mm-hmm.
0: You're going to tell me? <laughs> no, because yours is about one or something. <laughs>
1: What's your handicap?
0: Oh, it's eight now.
1: Mine was 18. Right. Which is not great, and no, not bad.
0: Eighteen's okay. It's
1: all right. Mm. So the same thing happened. So when I got married and had children... You stopped playing. I thought to myself, well, Carol's not going to put up with me saying I'm going off to play golf because it's mm. half an hour to get to Seton, mm. three and a half hours or three hours or whatever for the golf, depending who you're playing with. Mm. And then you can't just get in the car and drive home. You've got to have a beer and a sandwich and all the other stuff. And by the time you get home, you know, it's half the day. At least half the day is gone. A whole day. Exactly. So... Yeah. No, that had to stop. But now that, you know, I'm retired, Carolyn has um, taken up
0: golf at Mount Osmond and I'm playing a bit of golf with her. Really? Mm-hmm. Well, there you go. Well, so here's the thing. Golf is, it, it played away from your family, it's hopeless, mm. but played with your family, it's one of the great things to do. Golf and running. Uh, yeah, I don't know about running with the family, but the, um, well, I've done some of that, but my, you know, my eldest, who is now 22, who, who was a very, well, he's a very good golfer, You know, when he turned, I don't know, 13 or 14, and as boys do at that age, kind of lost the power of speech and all (laughs) you get out of them is the grunting. The the grunting, yeah, exactly. Um, Here was a way where every week we would spend four hours together and it was lovely, like really precious, actually. So so basically I play with the kids and, and I love it. My children didn't
1: go through the grunting phase. In some ways, I wish they would have. But no, they're very, very opinionated and talkative. How does that not surprise me? And I, you know, I don't really mind. But we didn't, we don't debate together, so we can't do that sport together. <laughs> Surprisingly. <laughs> My youngest might be a debater, but the others weren't really interested. Mm-hmm. So you grew up in Geelong. I did. Under the smokestacks of Geelong. Um, yes. Which was quite a battle for you. Where
0: are we going with this? The uh,
1: That was a tough start <laughs> for you, wasn't it, in Geelong? The uh, old knuckle dusters down behind the shed and showing people in the
0: in the union that you could mix it with the best of them. I would like to pretend that, uh, Christopher, but... What? Uh, That's
1: not the story. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Well, it is true. I grew up in the shadow of the Shell oil refinery, as it was then. My father was the deputy principal of Geelong Grammar. No, <laughs> so did you
1: go to Geelong
0: Grammar? You've, Christopher, of course, knows this, which is where <laughs> these questions were leading. Um, so I grew up on at on the campus. It must have been tough. Look, it was a. Um, it was a... It One was, of the most prestigious private schools in the country, maybe even the Southern Hemisphere. It was a charmed existence, is the truth. Now, Anna let was, me
1: think. Did, did Prince Charles go to Geelong, th- Grammar? Stop
0: it. <laughs> yeah, of course you know. <laughs> oh,
1: he did. <laughs> Timber top.
0: Yes. But it's uh, good.
1: I mean, so you and I basically have a quite similar kind of, you know, start in life. We, neither of us were... Going without...
0: We don't have our
1: Lincoln We log didn't have to make our story. shoes out of tyres and mm. it wasn't like the coal miner's daughter, the mm. song, you know, by Loretta Lynn. No. We don't have a log cabin story mm. and yet I chose the side of light and you ended up choosing the side of
0: darkness. How did that, <laughs> how did that happen? What went wrong... So do you, you remember your last speech, obviously, do, sure. which was a very funny speech, and you talked about not having your log cabin moment, but you, you, one of the best lines ever in the parliament <laughs> that you had occasionally been required to go out to the lemon tree to get your lemon for your gin and tonic. Get
1: my <laughs> own lemon for my gin and tonics, <laughs> but which you, I don't think qualifies as a log
0: cabin story. You said in that speech, and I'm going to butcher it, but you'll remember the words that... Um, I think it was something like to those who have been given a lot, there is no obligation. To those who much is given, much is expected. Yeah. It's from the Psalms. And and that you should be helping people who need help.
1: Correct. Yeah, okay. And, of course, Franklin Roosevelt's quote, which was, the test of our progress is not whether we add more to the abundance of those that have much, but whether we provide enough to those that have little. There you go. Which surprised all my colleagues, of course, that I would actually quote Franklin
0: Roosevelt and that particular quote. So I thought a lot about that and a lot about why you ended up where you ended up. Um, so, of course, I represent a seat which has a whole lot of people who, who do, do not have a lot, and representing them and trying to make their situation better is very much what my sort of political cause is about. It's an interesting thing, isn't it, though? A- and, and I think ultimately, you know, I think what defines a political party is the people who vote for it. And obviously what shapes you as a politician is the community that you represent. I mean, you'd agree with that. Mm. And so I take inspiration from that Roosevelt line. And did you which, read... Which why that leads me to the, the Labor Party. And How did, it... did you end up, like, well, which is why I find it confusing that you've ended up... In the Liberal Party. Exactly. I'm trying to find words to describe it. The, but
1: when you were young, did you used to read a lot of biographies and autobiographies and history books? Uh, no, not, not...
0: Not young, but I, I, but that is what I read now. So I I started. I was a pretty slow reader, uh, is the truth, um, and and I still am. So I d- there's read- nothing wrong with that. <laughs> <laughs> <you> reading to... <laughs> didn't become a habit for me probably until I was about 22, 21, 22. Right. Right. So it wasn't really a habit sort of as an adolescent. But once I started getting into reading, uh, biographies and history is what has absolutely dominated. So I was a voracious reader as a child. Yes. And I used
1: to have um, the same So ambition. all autobiographies? All Almost biographies. all
0: biographies,
1: autobiographies, history books. And the same Bishop Kennedy who I had to convince that an Offreus was actually a saint,
0: mm. was,
1: of, was a family friend, you won't be surprised to hear, mm. and used to come over for dinner quite often. And um, he used to bring me small history books as a child, mm. which I was required to read, and the next time he'd come for dinner he would test me on them to see if I'd read them. <laughs> so I, I grew up with this, you know, a lot of data going in, and... The thing that sort of struck me about all the things our people I was reading about was that they were mostly all in public life. They were all trying to do something, that mm-hmm. actually public service was a, a good thing in itself. Mm-hmm. And that no matter what else you did, being part of your community and, you know, making a difference was really important part mm-hmm. of being a good citizen. Yep. I decided after reading all of those different books about those particular people that the way to improve people's lives was to give them more choices and less government Uh, In interference and more decision-making power. To me, that meant the market and the economy being freer rather than having more government interference. But But
0: that's not what you've been about at all. But you can talk You're, for yourself yeah, because but no, no, I'm obviously, talking for you. You'd like as an you industry don't get minister. To talk me. <laughs> but but as an industry minister, you were quite interventionist. I know, but, but there's a role for government. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, there's definitely a role for government, which <laughs> yeah. is what puts me on and the left. Maybe a late, slightly bigger role. Of the Liberal
1: Party. But there's a kind of crossover there on the political spectrum where I think there needs to be government involvement. And I'm kind of sort of dirigiste in that view. Give us that again. Dirigiste. It's a French term for... <laughs> which means? ...more engagement by government in promoting national industries. Okay. Right.
0: Very good. hmm
1: <laughs> Thank you, because the listeners will want to know the answer <laughs> yeah, exactly. to that. And I sort of feel there is a role for government in doing that, so I'm not a laissez-faire liberal, which puts me on the liberal side of the party. Yes. But there's obviously a crossover on the spectrum where we jump over to you on the other side, not far away, waving through the fence of the spectrum (laughs) saying, well, actually, I'm not that dissimilar, but I've decided that the the government needs to have a bigger role and that the the choices you're talking about, Christopher, are actually empowering people who actually have no choices to start with, which is a lot of your constituents in Geelong. Mm -hmm. Is that a fair Uh, assessment?
0: I I think that... Roughly, uh, 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 having watched your career, well, having shadowed you, so I've watched your career up close. You stalked me. You stalked me. <laughs> you don't mind. You don't mind government getting involved. No, I don't. Um, So I, I'm not sure there is a difference there. Right. Um, but most of your colleagues, though, are, are very different. I mean, you are much more aligned to us in that sense. But it is, I, okay, I but think it, government has it, a role. Yeah. I mean, I think ultimately th- this is a conversation which ends up being what is the dividing line between Labor and Liberal. So See, well, I
1: wouldn't have let the car industry go. Well, exactly. The car if I'd industry been, should... Um, if I'd, I mean, I tried to influence that decision. I was in the cabinet, obviously. Yeah, that's but right. In the end, we couldn't that's keep the car industry. That's a example of it. Because the people in, D- in Detroit didn't want to. And what really happened there yeah, was that uh, Obama decided that he was going to stop only allow investments in the American car industry, and Detroit pulled everything back to Detroit. That's certainly what happened with GMH. The government goaded the car industry offshore. Not really, because the guy from um, GMH from General Motors who came out here, whose name escapes me momentarily, but it was something like Joachim or Jerome or something, he actually said it wouldn't matter how much money the government gives us in subsidies, we we are leaving. And I kind of felt like I gave up at that point on the car industry, which is one of the reasons for the defence industry, because I suddenly realised when I became the Minister for Defence Industry that there was $200 billion of spending over the next 10 years on defence, which is important, in building our capability... But we could still use as much of that as possible, where it still was the same capability to promote science,
0: technology, engineering, maths, careers in our own defence industry. And you know, that's something that, that we agree about in terms of the doing defence industry in Australia. But I, I, there's not a country in the world where the car industry isn't effectively a, a public-private partnership. I mean, government is involved. Well, I, in couldn't, the, I didn't win that argument. No, but government is involved in the making of cars all around the world. And so it is a Effectively, a government decision as to whether or not we should make them in Australia. And we should have definitely kept making them in Australia. Well, I'd now I like say to. that, having, I mean, Ford made cars in Geelong. And so the decision right. to stop making cars in Geelong was one of the key decisions which brought an end to the car industry. Although, you know, there were other decisions in relation to other companies, Toyota and the such, which really brought it about. But we, um, you know, it, it is a decision that government can make. But what is the dividing line between Labour and Liberal? I have an answer to this question, but what is the dividing line between Labor and Liberal?
1: I think the dividing line is the level of government interference in the economy and in the lives of an individual. So I think that the government should have a smaller role to play and that individuals should make more of their own decisions and that the government's role is getting out of their way as much as possible and taxing them as little as possible so that they can make their own decisions about how they spend their hard-earned money. Mm -hmm and where government needs to be involved is in a social safety net to protect those who haven't been able to have the same opportunities that you and I grew up with and won't be able to lift themselves out of you know poverty or homelessness or poor health outcomes or you know mental health difficulties that they might be having so that's what I think the dividing line is, whereas I think Labor believes that government has a much bigger role, and in the worst case scenario, with your Marxists and so on, you've got a few of those on the far left of the party, they know you're on the right wing, they think that really government is the better person or the better entity to make decisions than individuals, and they don't like the individuals being able to make decisions, so
0: i mean there's obviously a spectrum there's a in, spectrum in in all of what you've you've just said there um i think government does have a really important role to play in terms of industry i think government has a really important role to play in enabling people to make the choices that you're describing and what, to provide... through education yeah and... exactly through yeah. providing and providing the opportunities that you know, allow them to to live the lives that we would see as as part of Australia. And and so education, making sure that they've got access to healthcare.
1: It's a good um, example, though, education, because, like, there'd be some people in your party and in the Greens who would think, who would say, if they could get away with it, there shouldn't be any non-government schools. Oh, like, when I was the Minister for Education, there were some but no people on that. the far left. No, and the far left are definitely meetings I went to, I can assure you. People used to stand up and say you know, in X country, there are no non-government schools yeah. and we should have no non-government schools. Everyone should go to the same school. And I would think, well, that's a very left-wing view of the world because I think there should be people who should choose if they want to be able to go to a non-government school or a government school.
0: Yeah, of course. But, but there but, would be but, some
1: people in your party who'd like to not have any government I non- don't government think school.
0: there is anyone in the caucus who'd be making that Maybe not it? in
1: the caucus, yeah. perhaps across the... You don't think there's any Marxists in the Labor Party anymore? <laughs> no, I don't. that's like Bob Carter saying there's no gays in North Queensland, which <laughs> I thought a, was an unusual. You, you're, trying to, step you're trying to define
0: your opponent by the most extreme.
1: <laughs> I'm just trying to give you a chance to talk about that.
0: <laughs> I am glad I am in a party which which has as its focus the people who need the greatest help in in line with the roosevelt quote that you you gave and i think part of that is about making sure that we do embrace an idea of aspiration and social mobility so that because i think social mobility is very central to the project of an egalitarian australia and i think that's very much what labor has been about
1: it's rare, isn't it, for politicians and former politicians, recently former politicians, to actually talk about what they believe in in Australian politics, isn't it? Yeah. Well, like, I don't know. Is how it, is many it? times have we had this conversation on, in media, whereas we're always busy arguing and having lots of new media releases and gotcha moments, but to actually talk about why you're Liberal or why you're Labour is very rare for people to talk about that.
0: Yeah, except that you and I have often talked about this, but individually. <laughs> That's true. Did we ever talk about this on air? We did 100 shows. Did we not talk about this? I don't think we did. Uh, Not to that
1: extent. No. You were too busy trying to trip me up.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's talk about the show
1: because Pine and Miles was really a trailblazer. Did you enjoy it? I loved it. I loved
0: it it too. It It was great
1: fun. And do you know, the things that I found most amusing about Pine and Miles was how much our colleagues hated it. (laughs) They did. And how much the journalists hated it. I did. Because we didn't realise, neither of us being journos, that mm. having the two politicians asking the questions of mm. the guest mm. and talking to themselves was the first time that they'd taken a
0: journalist out of the picture. No, that's exactly right. And the journalist thought, this is terrible.
1: You know, it's like everyone being a journalist or a photographer on Twitter and the social media,
0: they didn't want that to become so, a thing. Uh, so when the idea was first pitched to you, mm. what, what do you think Sky had in mind?
1: I just think they thought it would be new and different and it would break ground and how bad can it be because you're going to win. I mean, it was pretty
0: bad, actually.
1: <laughs> the stunt, you can always terrible. bone a show. <laughs> uh, I think
0: most of my, my colleagues thought. gave us six six episodes. They, they, well, we did
1: over 100. We did
0: over 100. We and did. we
1: had some very good guests. <laughs> we did, we did. See, you were surprised that I actually did know the but, Emperor Haile Selassie. But did third. you?
0: Uh, how uh, how did I we- <laughs> How did we end up interviewing him?
1: Because he is my friend and (laughs) he was visiting
0: Australia. When were you last in contact?
1: Uh, He contacted (laughs) me after I retired. Did he? To say that I'd had a a wonderful (laughs) career and he looked forward to seeing me in Washington and whether this is true or not, you'll never be able to prove. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, he did. I met him in Washington, D.C. Mm Mm-hmm. And I was the only person who knew that his grandfather, Haile Selassie I, was first out, first in.
0: First out, first in.
1: Arnold, in uh, one of Arnold Toynbee's books about the wars, mm-hmm. the caption underneath Haile Selassie's photograph was first out, first in, as in he was tossed out by the Italians in uh, the 30s and he yeah. was one of the very first back into his capital of Addis Ababa. And Haile Selassie III and I became instantaneous friends. Well, I think a lot of people hadn't noticed him
0: in the way that I did. I think that's true. It, it, then it, he came to Australia and we had him on our show. It was a fun interview. A, you a were little very juice, tolerant, actually. But it was a fun interview.
1: <laughs> you were very tolerant of me wanting to do things. No, but I like that. I, I interview people who may not have been first order in the press that day.
0: Uh I like the idea of doing things that no one else does, which is why the Onofreus story has stuck with me. Yeah, obviously it has. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you.
1: Thank you for that. So when did our colleagues become so timid and about doing media that was
0: outside their comfort zone? Oh, I don't know the answer to that. But, it, 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 you know, there is a... Uh, well, I, th- I think it is the battle now, isn't it, in politics, to try and be as authentic as you can. Um, well, is, well, Trumpy sort of try to lead the way a bit. President Trump, I should call him.
1: Has led the way a
0: bit. He's Um, now Trumpy. 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 Is that what happens when you leave? You can say what you like when you leave. Say what you like.
1: But no, President Trump, I think he has led the way a bit on being authentic. Right. But he does divide. He completely, he does divide. Yeah, he does. But I don't know, I think the politician who never shows any uh, of their true self is going to go out of fashion pretty quickly. Yeah, definitely. Mm. Now, South Pacific mm-hmm. is a great interest of yours. It
0: is. Was it, it is. an interest
1: before you were the Prime Minister Secretary for Pacific Island Affairs? It was. So, oh. I
0: I at the age of 16 went on a school trip to Papua New Guinea right. uh, in 1984. And like it was a really remarkable trip to go on. I mean, in in this day and age of kind of liability and thinking about kids, it's kind of unimaginable actually that Mm. a school would do this and and the parents would willingly send their kids into this situation. But I can remember we went into the highlands of PNG. We were going for a hike. There had been rain, which happens literally every day, but it had had washed away the path that we were intending to take, which meant that we went through this valley and it was about an eight-hour walking detour. Right. It was incredible. And we were walking through obviously a place which hadn't been walked really by anyone in a long time four hours from walk from anywhere we come across this couple just a, a husband and wife in a in a hut with a market garden around them like they th- that's about as remote as you can imagine like Sounds they, they, very live, remote. they live four hours transport from the nearest person I mean they were completely shocked I think to see a group of school kids turn up um, from Australia. From Geelong Grammar. Um, they, within, I reckon. Were you being carried in a. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, a no, no, no. CD Get that image out of your you, mind. You that is not what was going weren't on. You were being carried. Let in, me tell the story. Between two bamboos yes. <laughs> on a chair. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. We were working hard mm. carrying our own packs. Lovely. Thank you very much. Um, within five minutes, this guy had negotiated with his wife that he was going to navigate us to. The next place, it it does make me think: What on earth are we going to do if we hadn't run into this couple, given that we didn't know where we were going in the middle of the PNG Highlands? Anyway, he he navigates us to. This is a dangerous place. He navigates us to the next village, as we get. So that that mind you is in five minutes a decision to take eight hours out of his day. Incredible. Mm. So then we we get there, and as we're walking, but about maybe a kilometre out, he starts yelling across the valley and and yells come back. I mean this is incredibly kind of exotic. This is mm. this is announcing that we're about to arrive. And then a whole lot of kids come running out and the younger ones like I don't know, maybe under 3 or 4 are completely gobsmacked at what they are seeing, these white people walking along. And as we're walking, you can feel them touching your hands. As yeah, your hand Mark goes never back. never seen white people. Well, it, it became clear mm. that I think we were the first white people to walk this track in about three or four years. So for those younger kids, we were the first. Like, this is like for a 16 year old from Geelong to have this experience was completely unbelievable. And then was one story among many in, in a three-week trip, which just, what well, it, it, it was breathtaking and what to this day I still think is the most exotic country on earth. And really for me, it was kind of love at first sight with PNG and with the Pacific. Right. And So in various guises since at the Slater and Gordon when I was a did my articles there. I pretend I was a lawyer there. My wife, who's a real lawyer, tells me that I wasn't, or well, not one that made the grade. Um, that's but, nice of her. <laughs> yeah, you could, yeah, I'm sure you can imagine. I was at Cause Chambers Westgarth, a I, big corporate firm. And, and I, I suspect <laughs> we had similar legal careers. Yes. Um, yeah, I was a crackerjack lawyer. Indeed. For um, about 18 months. Exactly. That's <laughs> that, that, and I'm sticking to this. Um, yes. But I went to PNG then when Slater's was involved in the Octetie litigation at the ACTU. I went back a number of times working with the PNG Trade Union Congress. So I'd actually been to the Pacific quite a bit before I entered the parliament. So it was right. something, and in fact, Kevin Rudd knew- But well, then you were lucky because you got that role well, so Kevin as the parliamentary secretary for Pacific Island Affairs. Indeed. And he, he knew it was an interest of mine. Right. Um, and- Julia Gillard was then the Prime Minister, Kevin was the foreign minister, and I think as the two of them talked about who would be their parliamentary secretary, he suggested me knowing this interest of mine. And I felt like I'd hit the jackpot. So I, you
1: must take a particular interest in the Pacific step up and what yeah, Scott I and I announced last year and you know how that can be well implemented. So as deputy leader of the Labor Party, you could choose any portfolio you wanted. Mm-hmm. I'm delighted you chose to stick with defence because mm-hmm. I think it's a really important part of the government. Why did you choose to pick defence when you could
0: have done anything you wanted? Well, I've I've fallen in love with defence and I think you fell in love with defence as, as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is a... Firstly, it's really the biggest thing that the Commonwealth government does. If you measure it in terms of employment... Um, there's north of a hundred thousand people who are employed in defence, if you take mm. the the ADF, the reserves and the department mm. and direct contractors. Mm. Um, I think you know the next biggest area of employment in the Commonwealth government might be the Department of Human Services, which or government services which which looks at uh, Centrelink and the like. I think it's less than twenty thousand, so I could have that number wrong but but what is clearly right is that, in terms of what the Commonwealth does, this is the biggest area. So, that, And that implies a few things. It's an area which goes to the economy in terms of defence industry, um, really important in terms of the economy. You take the submarines, which you've obviously played a significant part in. That's the most expensive procurement. It's the most expensive thing Australia's ever bought in any context. So, you know, you're making big government decisions there. There is, of course, a whole lot of strategic policy as we've been talking about. Defence, along with foreign affairs, is central to that. But the other point I would make, and and you've no doubt had this experience as well, getting to know the men and women of our Defence Force, fantastic people, you know, and often... I think life, or at least, you know, you, one's professional life is is in large measure determined by the people that you get to work you with. You chose to spend your 50th birthday with them. Indeed, I did. That's <laughs> true. I did, I did. I did. Well, <laughs> I ran away from everyone else. So he did
1: talisman sabre, I think, or one Thursdays of the operations. Are,
0: are things to keep in a closet, in my view, <laughs> <laughs> and not to be celebrated. I'm in denial about it. Thank you for raising it. Um, <laughs> but incredible people. <laughs> and um, so I really, I, you know, I've really enjoyed working with them. Yeah, no, I mean, you you must have. Absolutely. Found it's a great privilege. I mean, one of the great parts about being the Minister for Defence
1: is getting to meet these men and women, especially in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, mm. wherever they might be. You know, they are so highly trained, so out, just outstanding people, and they're putting their lives in danger because the government asks them to do something. Yeah. Because we think it's in our national interests to promote freedom, liberty, democracy. Stability, and they say, "Yeah, we'll um we'll go to the front line,
0: and the other ones are going to lose their lives, not ours." There's something very so kind of sacred about putting on that uniform. It's 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 the idea that you know, in conflicts, you, you put on that uniform, you might never take it off. Hmm. Um, and and I'm not sure that anyone undertakes such an assumption of risk in in the work that they do as what our defence personnel they do.
1: So was this podcast as bad as you thought it was going to be? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I've had fun as always Christopher. <laughs> <laughs> so you tell what, is what, there life on the
1: other side? Oh yes it's fantastic. You know the things that you that the thing I really miss is not having anybody running my life for me on a daily mm-hmm. basis. I used to have 24 people that did that. <laughs> do you really miss that? I miss that. I do I miss that because I was I hate all that organization
0: and administration. I, did it de-skill you? In did, the, absolutely. In the basics did. of life. What,
1: 26 years as a parliamentarian <laughs> like having somebody else running your life for you for more than a quarter of a century? <laughs> yes, it definitely de-skilled me. <laughs> I didn't even know how to register a vehicle, you know. I kind of thought you went into the State Transport Authority, you know. But I don't miss... I mean, I I enjoy talking to people that I want to talk to as Mm. opposed to the ones that I have to talk to because Mm -hmm. in politics you have to talk to everybody. I I don't miss that grinding schedule, you know, that Mm -hmm. sense that it's Sunday, I'm going to Canberra, I'll be there till Friday, there's nothing I can do about it. I can't say I'm not coming today. Mm. (laughs) You just have to go.
0: You
1: know, that's not something I'm missing and I just love being my own boss.
0: That'd
1: be fun. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for joining us today, It's
0: been a pleasure, Christopher. Thank you.
1: Pine Time was presented by me, Christopher Pine. Audio production by Darcy Thompson, produced by Matt Dwyer and the ever-patient executive producer, Jennifer Goggin.